Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Need a cold coffee with a bold flavor? Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods were specially crafted for cold coffee. Brew over ice straight out of the Keurig coffee maker for smooth, delicious Dunkin' taste you know and love. Find your next Dunkin' Cold coffee in the roasted coffee aisle. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Today's episode is also brought to you by City Running Tours. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should all those treats you ate this past week sit in your behind? Well, the team at City Running Tours doesn't think so, and neither should you. Start the new year off right and in a unique way on a guided running tour of New York City. Join one of their scheduled routes or customize your own personal running experience. These tours are also perfect for your next corporate or social event. Sweat and sightsee to discover New York's iconic neighborhoods and landmarks. Gain insight into the city through your running guide's personal stories and recommendations. Walk away feeling more like a local and knowing your city running tours experience was the best part of your trip. Share your love of running with the team at City Running Tours as they share the city with you. Visit cityrunningtours.com slash newyorkcity to book your city running tour today. Plus, use the coupon code BOWERYBOYS to receive 10% off your next tour. And finally, I'd like to announce two new Bowery Boys live events for the year 2020. The first, a Bowery Boys live podcast recording at the Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn, as part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. That's Sunday, January 26th at 5 p.m. Tickets for $20. You can get those tickets at the Bell House website or at cityfarmspresents.com. And... We are happy to announce that we are returning as the hosts of the 6th Annual Guides Association of New York Awards, the Gannick Apple Awards. It's on Monday, March 2nd at the SVA Theater. The Gannick Apple Awards honor individuals and organizations that encourage and promote New York City tourism, culture, and preservation while supporting the work and contributions of professional New York City tour guides. We loved hosting this event last year. We're going to have a great time this year. We'd love to see you there. For tickets, go to gannick.org. That's G-A-N-Y-C dot org. Episode 306 of the Bowery Boys. Just desserts. Stories of New York's favorite sweets. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And listener, we are coming to you live from the green space at WNYC Studios on Barrick Street. Wow, hello, hello there to our studio audience. It's so exciting to have, to say that we have a studio audience. A real live studio audience. It isn't just you and I in a dark, dingy room. (laughs) And I think even there might be some people outside looking in. Uh, They're all, you're all gathered here with us at the final moments of 2019. And what a wonderful way to end the year. And what a fun year that it's actually been. Yeah. (laughs) What a year that it's been. Um, 
Oh, you're talking about us, like on the podcast. Oh, oh, what I a guess, fun yeah, year we yeah. had on the Bowery Boys podcast. Yeah. That's right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been challenging in other respects, but on our show, we have romped through the secrets of Upper Manhattan. We've talked trash with the sanitation department. We visited the World's Fair of 1939. And although, truth be told, uh, we also tackled quite a few heavy subjects this year, mm-hmm. like recently the Eldridge Street Synagogue, um, housing di- discrimination in Stuyvesant Town, gay activism in the 1960s. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of serious, a lot of heavy shows. Even our history of the bagel show was heavy. Wasn't? Carb heavy. (laughs) We had a lot of carbs for that show. Uh, We also got to know lots of interesting New York characters like Andrew Haswell Green, the Collier Brothers, Lillian Wald, Scott Joplin, and, of course, more on Boss Tweed. Been a lot. So tonight we thought that we would end the year with something a little bit lighter. We are skipping past the meat and potatoes and going straight for the desserts. Just desserts, bite sized histories of New York's favorite sweet things. So, where do we even begin with this subject? Of course, sugar has, of course, played a pivotal role in American history, and especially here in New York, where during the colonial era, some of the city's most prominent buildings were constructed just to hold the stuff. They were New York's biggest buildings, sugar houses. Yeah, many of you are probably familiar with the old Domino Sugar Factory. That will be cut. (laughs) Domino Sugar Refinery in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Today, there's a brand new park there called Domino Park. Uh, Domino Foods traces its origins to a lower Manhattan sugar refinery owned by William Havemeyer, a man who became a mayor of New York City three times in the 1840s and in the 1870s. Yeah. So yeah, that was a direction for the show that we could have gone, uh, but we're not going to. I think we actually lost half of you during with the wor- with the phrase Havemeyer. So yeah. <laughs> we're not going that direction. Yeah, there are other directions the show could have taken as well. Right. So think of all of the mass marketed American sweets that have actually been invented here in New York City. For example, did you know, Tom, that? Peter Cooper, the great industrialist, invented gelatin. Uh, in 1845, he obtained the first patent for a gelatin dessert. Are you telling me that without Mr. Cooper Union, we wouldn't have jello? Oh, I am telling you, yes. <laughs> Remember, he was also Mr. Glue Factory. So he had all of these horse parts lying around, like connective tissue and viscera. So basically, he all would right, so boil we down we all of the gone, bones into the... Yeah, we could so have gone in that direction, but we didn't. <laughs> um, then you also have desserts like the Baked Alaska and Red Velvet Cake, desserts that were popularized in Gilded Age hotels like the Waldorf Astoria and restaurants like Delmonico's. But these are all foods that were made in New York City. For this show, we wanted to focus on the delicious treats that make New York City, the sweet items that add to the New York City experience. So we're focusing on desserts that represent New York. Tonight, we're going to talk about five desserts that have either originated in New York or have been perfected here. They all have interesting stories, but their stories also say something about New York's history. Yeah, so while we're exploring the individual histories of these treats, we suspect that you'll start picking up on one very big 
underlying theme? Butter. <laughs> no, 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 not butter. No. More serious than that, folks. It's a theme that has underscored several of our shows this year, and that's the idea that these treats didn't just magically appear here in New York on their own. Most of them were brought here and perfected here by immigrants. So we'll be telling these stories tonight. And as our studio audience can see, we've done something a little campy. We've set, we've set, we set up for you in a, in a very Price is Right style diorama here. Tom, can you explain actually to our listeners at home what it is that we've done? Well, listeners, there's a table sitting in front of Greg and me on top of which are five cake stands. <laughs> Each with a dome lid. They're all lined up nicely, and the lids are covering each of the five iconic desserts that we'll be discussing today. One by one, we'll be lifting those lids to reveal the next sweet story. And as we go along here, we're going to actually be calling out some of our favorite local spots to find where you can find some of these treats. We just want to note that nobody paid to be included on the show. These are like truly and deeply our favorites. Although if you'd like to advertise, email me. <laughs> but what will the five sweets be, Tom? Oh, the drama. This truly is a very special episode of the Bowery Boys. But what are we doing sitting around here? Let's get snacking. <laughs> so um, where should we start here? Should I just go ahead and lift the lid off of this one? Oh, or? no, I think it needs to be a little bit more dramatic. Hold off. Let... let <laughs> Let's see if, if you can actually guess what we're starting with. Okay. My first iconic dessert is something that many people may not actually immediately associate with New York because it's an American icon, but it did get its start here back in the old New Amsterdam days. Oh, so it is a Dutch dessert. Mm -hmm. Could it be a pancake? A mm -hmm. panacoken? Mm -mm. No? Mm -mm. Uh, Dutch apple pie? No, go back to pancake. Think pancake, but fry it. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for the donut. Yeah. That's right. That's right. The donut traces its history back to New Amsterdam when cooks would whip up a batch of what the Dutch called oilykeken or oily cakes. Mmm, oily cakes. Like, my, my skin is just breaking out, thinking of the old oily cakes. Um, well, did they, did they look like the donuts that we have today? Yeah, in that they were round and sweet and fried. That's what made them oily cakes. Mm -hmm. By the way, I also did a little research. I came across the name oil cakes as well, which is somehow <laughs> even less appetizing. Mm. But take notes. These oily cakes didn't have holes. And sometimes they were, they were topped with fruit, quite, quite similar to something that the Dutch called oilybollen, or oil balls. Um, <laughs> literally dove, like scooped and plopped into the grease. So when in this history does it get a, a, a more appetizing name than oil balls? <laughs> well, we find the term donuts in use in 1809 in Washington Irving's humorous classic, A History of New York. He writes about the custom back in New Amsterdam of throwing afternoon tea parties. Quote, mm -hmm. 
Sometimes the table was graced with immense apple pies or saucers full of preserved peaches and pears, but it was also sure to boast an enormous dish of balls of sweetened dough fried in hog's fat and called dough nuts or oily cooks. A delicious kind of cake at present scarce known in the city, excepting in genuine Dutch families. But did these balls of sweetened dough fried in hog's fat, did they, did they at least taste like today's donuts? Yeah, although we need to tackle something right now. Today there are many different varieties of donuts. Okay, those with holes, those without holes, those with fillings. But there are also two main, I would say, categories of donuts. Those made with yeast, they rise before frying, and those that use a, more of a cake batter, like the ones before us today. The Dutch oily cakes used yeast, and into the 19th century, those yeast donuts would be very popular, um, not just here in New York, of course, but up in New England as well. New England, the land of Dunkin' Donuts, by the way. New right? England runs right? on Dunkin'. <laughs> English cookbooks as early as 1802 contained recipes for something like a donut, uh, which they simply called nuts. Uh, fr <laughs> Round fried nuts of dough. Or in Duncan parlance, a munchkin, <laughs> pretty much. Now, as we mentioned before, we're also talking about immigration and how arriving immigrants added their own twists to these kinds of sweets. Sometimes literally twisting the sweet, yes. Uh, there would be churros that came from Spain. Italians would fry up zeppolis. All of it, yummy and fried. So when did the donut get their holes? Actually. Oh, that is the stuff of donut legend. Mm -hmm. I'm great, sure. great donut debates have actually been held on this subject. There was even a donut round table um, held at the <laughs> Hotel Astor in 1941, <laughs> which I'm getting to in a second with the historical <laughs> newspaper clipping. One popular story has it that in the 1840s, a sailor named Hanson Gregory was regularly... Is that really his name or is it Gregory Hanson? Hanson. I'd say he's a handsome Gregory Hansen myself, Gregory. Okay. but... Hanson Gregory. Hanson Gregory was Hanson Gregory was regularly uh, sailing about with a supply of oily cakes that had been made for him by his mom. She would actually stuff the centers of those cakes, which were often undercooked, with little nuts and fruits and things oh, like that. That sounds great. Well, apparently her son didn't agree with her. He told uh, the Boston Post nearly 120 years ago that he got so tired of those uncooked centers that he cut them out with the rounded lid of his tin pepper box aboard his ship, mm. leaving behind a ring-shaped donut. Wow. So when here in the story, when does the donut finally go mainstream, I guess? Well, they would largely remain a homemade treat until the, the early 20th century. But something big happened uh, for the donut during World War I when the Salvation Army, headquartered here in New York, decided to send a taste of home to the boys who were fighting in the trenches in France. So New Yorkers sent donuts to France during the war? Oh, better than that. They shipped female donut makers to France. Mm. <laughs> Hundreds of young women, whom the soldiers would end up calling donut girls and donut lassies, uh, were sent by the Salvation Army to France to give the men some home cooking. They made them right there, that's the best part, near the front lines, often rolling out the dough with wine bottles, whatever was laying around, 
So the soldiers then returned from the war, I assume, with this like new appreciation for the donut. Yes, but the war had made donuts uniquely, quote, American. And by the way, the same group, the Salvation Army, would continue with their donut crusade during the Great Depression when they'd pass out millions of them, often served with coffee, to hungry Americans in the streets, many of them right here in New York City. So by the 1930s here, donuts were becoming commonplace. Well, they were becoming big business, thanks partially to a Jewish immigrant named Adolf Levitt, who was certain that a fortune was waiting for whoever could automate the process of making donuts. There, there, there already were some donut machines in circulation by this point. You know, bakeries would put them in the front window to attract passers-by. But he wanted to really mainstream that and, and to market it better. And so in 1931, he opened up the first donut chain called the Mayflower Coffee Shop uh, with a location in Times Square. And by the end of the decade, his Donut Corporation of America would become the largest producer of donut machines in the country. They became so wildly successful uh, that by 1949, they occupied a five-story donut laboratory at 42 <laughs> Stone Streets, a building that still stands there today. It houses the Route 66 Smokehouse. A donut lab on Stone Street. Mm -hmm. So this is sitting in Lower Manhattan, by the way, on the spot of old Dutch New Amsterdam. So I guess you could say that the donut here has come full circle. <laughs> you could. You did. <laughs> Levitt had a flair for PR. For example, like obviously he couldn't let the 1939 World's Fair pass by. The, the company actually sponsored a donut pavilion. He called it the Donut Casino. And they could actually hand out 1,400 donuts at once uh, to hungry fairgoers, and they did. I would have been all over something called the Donut Casino. Uh, uh, by any chance, just to go back to something you said earlier, is this the same company that sponsored that donut round table at the, was it the Hotel Astor? It, indeed, in 1941. They attempted to get the whole truth about the donuts. <laughs> no more. No more. No more. I swear. I, I promise. To quote from an article on October 28th, 1941, that ran in the New York Times, quote, the controversy over who first put holes in donuts was settled for the moment yesterday by a vote of delegates to the first annual convention of the National Dunking Association at the Hotel Astor. By a three to one vote, the delegates decided that Captain Hanson Crockett Gregory mm -hmm. revolutionized the donut baking rules in 1847 by suggesting to his mother that she leave the centers out. His claim was presented at the convention by his great-grandnephew, Fred Crockett. Mm. Glad Fred could make it. <laughs> Later in the article, it, 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 it says, and this is a side point, asterisk, but I think it's interesting. In an attempt to end another bitter controversy in donut ranks, the delegates adopted a resolution distinguishing between donuts and crawlers. You'll have to come to another <laughs> show for that story. Yes. I mean, wow. I've just been a fly on the wall at the Hotel Astor on that particular afternoon. I think there were a lot of flies on the wall at the Hotel Astor. Um, anyhow, by the 1950s, uh, there was a proliferation of donut shops around the city, around the country, you know, in diners, luncheonettes, 
built around the donut, the donut shop. And today you'll still find many old style donut shops here throughout the city with lunch counters and an array of donuts behind the cash register. Places like the Donut Pub in Chelsea. Yeah, I have fallen for Peter Pan in Greenpoint. But that's not the end of the story, donut lovers. There's still a final twist. Yes, as is the case with many of New York's most iconic foods, a sort of rediscovery takes place starting in the 1990s. Maybe rediscovery is like too strong a word as donuts were already pretty ubiquitous and hadn't really been forgotten, but a, a better word might be reconsideration um, because the donut could be something now beautiful, something trendy, something small batch and artisanal. <laughs> In 1994, 25 years ago, a baker named Mark Israel created the donut plant. For the first six years, he actually rolled out his donuts in his Lower East Side apartment and then biked them around to bakeries himself. In 2000, he opened his, uh, his donut plant boutique on Grand Street. I think there's still some people in line from, from the opening day. <laughs> well, I mean, we know it pretty well. When we started our show, we were both from the Lower East Side. That's where we started the Bowery Boys podcast. We're around the corner. And so those early episodes were fueled by just one of those donuts because they're, you know, tire size. But they're, but uh, we're, yeah, it's part of sort of our, part of our story. And really sort of within a few years from that, the donut had become trendy again. But never trendier. Then in 2013, when baker Dominique Ansel developed a top secret method of beautifully merging together the donut with the delicate nature of the croissants. A three day top secret cooking process that results in the cronuts. And that is how you get the cronut onto a Bowery Boys podcast <laughs> to mean anything. So there we go. It all starts on the battlefields of France. Uh, Although, I mean, it is kind of French. Kind of. Kind of. Uh, but ladies and gents, next time you bite into a fresh hot donut, thank the old Dutch families of New Amsterdam for frying up those first oily cakes. Thank you, Donut. Wow. So much, so much history amid so much sugar there. So, well, Tom, for our next delicious entrant. I'm going to introduce you to an enigma, a mysterious enigma. Obviously something not as commonplace as the donut, but perhaps an item that many consider more uniquely New York City. For the next few moments, we're going to spend some time with the egg cream. <laughs> The egg cream. Oh, very New York. Um, <laughs> but why exactly is the egg cream a, an enigma? Well, just as there are no nuts in a donut, an egg cream has neither egg nor cream, actually. <laughs> um, it is made with milk, seltzer, and chocolate syrup, and often served like this in a very tall, thin glass. Mm. So it kind of looks like an ice cream soda, mm -hmm. right? So we're talking about old school soda fountain fare. I can just see Archie and Jughead right now at the soda fountain slurping up some egg creams. Well, 
I have news for you. They have updated Archie and the gang a little bit. Shout out to Riverdale fans. But while Archie has actually matured, the egg cream has remained the same and is as wholesome as ever. Even a little trendy today. Oh, but I would, I would argue that egg cream experience is actually probably sure. gone, right? We don't really have neighborhood soda fountains around anymore. Well, in fact, let me actually take a little detour into the history of the soda fountain, or rather New York City's role in the creation of the soda fountain. Now, personally, I think when I think of the soda fountain, I don't know what, what you may think, I think it's very classic Americana, like poodle skirts, jukeboxes, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. There's one in every town in America. But the soda fountain was actually born in Europe and was perfected in Northeast United States. As early as 1809, soda water, or charged water, as they called it, was dispensed in places like the Tontine Coffee House on Wall Street and would be mixed with wine, herbs, or spices. By the mid-19th century, Philadelphia and New York were both vying for the title of Soda City. Uh, introducing fruit flavors to soda water and manufacturing transportable soda fountains so that people could dispense it on the street. But when I think of a soda fountain, I, I actually think of an old-timey drugstore. Could you remind us of why sodas would be sold in drugstores? Well, for a time, soda water was considered a treatment for various ailments and was sometimes mixed with actual drugs. Uh, some of the more most famous, some of the most famous sodas today have medical associations, such as Coca-Cola had cocaine in it back when that was a thing. <laughs> then, of course, you had the licensed physician, Dr. Pepper. Right. I don't think he was a licensed no, physician, okay, no. but um, getting back to egg creams then. This all sounds much more sophisticated than these early soda products. Um, did it evolve? Did the egg cream evolve from those drinks? Yeah, because if you just substitute the cola or the fruit syrup or whatever and substitute it with straight up chocolate, and voila! Mm, thank you, I will. <laughs> By the early 20th century, these beverages were also dispensed in candy stores because, I mean, that's really what it is. It's not medicine. And no area of New York City had a greater concentration of candy stores than the Lower East Side. Yeah, today there's a massive candy store on the Lower East Side called Economy Candy. That place, let's hear it for Economy Candy. That place is a time capsule. Yeah, I mean, there were hundreds hundreds of so-called candy stores on the Lower East Side during the early 20th century. One report uh, noted that in 1930, one out of every 20 businesses on the Lower East Side was a candy store. And one out of every 10 was a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> and this would be a tradition that would carry into Jewish neighborhoods in all five boroughs. Many would function like general social spaces with people escaping their crowded living conditions and just hanging out for hours. Some candy stores had telephones before the advent of the public payphone in the 1920s, so people went there for that. Many of these candy stores would begin selling newspapers and magazines, and then by the 1930s, comic books. 
And some candy stores would also sell cigars and cigarettes. And you don't mean candy cigarettes. Oh, no, no, no. But they would sell those too. Sure. <laughs> Probably all, all different kinds of cigarettes. And most, of course, most of these places had soda fountains. And so it was in a Lower East Side candy store that the egg cream was invented? That's correct. Now, here's the thing with food history, is just something to keep in mind here with all of these stories. It's sometimes very, very hard to find out who did the first something. Uh, it's really on the edge of folk history and urban legend, but the mostly agreed upon origin of the egg cream does start on the Lower East Side. Now, sometime in the 1900s, they were first served in a candy store owned by a candy man named Louis Oster, whose store sat at 2nd Avenue and 7th Street. Uh, I have to ask, did his original recipe actually have eggs in it? Well, the Oster recipe uh, was a guarded secret. Some say egg was included in the original recipe, but others doubt that. To quote Oster's grandson Stanley uh, from a 1989 article, quote, People thought there was cream in it, and they would like to think that there was egg in it, because egg meant something that was really good and expensive. But there was never any egg, and there was never any cream. So then why do we call it an egg cream? <laughs> well, there are even a lot of theories just about the name. Now, the most obvious, I think, is the fact that the foam on the top of an egg cream looks, you know, it looks kind of eggy. But there is one amazing urban legend that might be true. So I'm going to stick with this story. So let's go back to Louis Oster's candy store. The one there. at 2nd Avenue and 7th Street? Yes. Okay. Now, along 2nd Avenue during this period was the heart of the Yiddish entertainment district, the Yiddish Broadway. So many European Jewish immigrants on the Lower East Side that an entire theater district developed to entertain them. And next year, we need to do a show. Yeah. I'm almost that. embarrassed to talk about this because we haven't done a show on this. It's so, so interesting. But anyway, the stars of the Yiddish stage would have popped into a candy store, naturally, once in a while. So one of the biggest stars of the day was an actor named Boris Tomaszewski. And as legend would have it, Tomaszewski proclaimed that it reminded him of something that he had sampled back in Paris, a chocolat et creme. Or I think it's pronounced chocolat et crème. He's the, he knows how to do the French. Say, say it again. Say it. Et crème. Et crème. <laughs> See? These are my favorite type of etymological accidents. You know, the beginning of this story kind of reminds me of the history of the bagel, um, a Jewish food which slowly becomes mainstream or accepted by the general public. Yeah, it, it happens quite fast with the egg cream, actually. Soda fountains and drugstores and candy stores and all the five boroughs began selling them, and soon in largely non-Jewish neighborhoods. And then it carries out into the suburbs and then throughout the United States. I would even say that the egg cream goes mainstream faster than the bagel, just simply because it was far easier to make. And let, let me see if I can remember the ingredients. Seltzer, milk, and chocolate syrup. But certainly there's got to be a local hook to it. Oh, yes, there is, Tom. And that local hook belongs to Brooklyn. Now, some people 
are convinced that the egg cream was invented in Brooklyn. And I would say if you were a child in the 20th century growing up in Brooklyn, that egg creams were part of your life. But many claim that if you want the truest, the most authentic egg cream, you have to use a very specific Brooklyn ingredient. So around the same time that the egg cream was invented, a Brooklyn manufacturer named Herman Fox began producing Fox's, you bet, chocolate syrup. <laughs> and to this day, the syrup is still made, albeit in many flavors now, and it's still the most sought-after chocolate syrup for the egg cream. So this thing sounds so delicious. By, by the 1950s, you've got Leave it to Beaver drinking <laughs> egg creams after school. But something happens. What, why does it disappear? I mean, the, the egg cream was not part of my childhood. No. I mean, Tom, that's because we had soda, right? Nice big cans and two liters of sugary soda disintegrating our teeth into disgusting nubs. That's what we had. Um, but seriously, egg creams disappeared because soda fountains disappeared. Drugstores got rid of their lunch counters, and by the 1960s and 70s, cans of soda could be mass distributed and sold. You didn't need to go to a special place to socialize over soda. Mm -hmm. So we almost lost the egg cream. But in the past couple decades, there has been a little bit of a resurgence, both, uh, both an interest in handmade foods and beverages and a return, in a way, to celebrate a dessert that's both very vintage and also very New York. I have a question, actually, for the audience here with us today at the Green Space. Um, who here has actually had an egg cream? Oh, Whoa. Good. I would say that is a very large percentage. Uh, more more than half, right? More than Maybe, half. Okay. More, so, so then I guess I could ask the audience, but Greg, I'm going to ask you, because you have a mic, where can we go <laughs> in New York to enjoy an egg cream? Well, there are surprisingly many places that sell them, but I want to give just a couple shout-outs here. The first is to a place called Brooklyn Pharmacy and Soda Fountain, which opened in 2010 in the Cobble Hill, Brooklyn neighborhood, uh, within the location of a 1920s drugstore, actually. And so they do a new twist on this old classic. But that's great. I, I kind of want to go really old school. Um, so I the think oldest I, school. I think yes. I want to head over to St. Mark's, actually, in 2nd Avenue to a place called Gem Spa. Now, the Gem Spa is famous for their egg creams. Some even say the egg cream was invented here and not at Oster's, which, by the way, would have been only a block away from Jim Spa. Mm. So you never know. Jim Spa is a classic place. This is where Robert Maplethorpe and Patti Smith would get egg creams back in the late 1960s and you can still enjoy them today. I enjoyed one on Sunday actually, albeit you don't get them in a, a cool glass, you get them in a plastic cup, paper cup. But hey, it's an egg cream to go. So run out and celebrate history just like Archie used to do with a wholesome old-fashioned egg cream. All right. Well, we've taken you from the donut to the egg cream. Who's getting kind of hungry in here? Because we've <laughs> yeah, yeah. got three more treats in store for you. We'll get to those right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. 
Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Did you know that the bold, smooth taste of Dunkin' cold coffee can be brewed in your Keurig coffee maker and enjoyed at home? Dunkin's cold K-cup pods were crafted to be brewed hot and enjoyed cold. And of course, they're packed with the Dunkin' flavor you crave. Brew over ice and sip in seconds. Because the home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. All right, so we're back. And here we are. Oh, the green space. I'm sitting here with great anticipation mm. behind three more covered suites here. So uh, who's ready to look behind the cover number three, right? I have a feeling, actually, that the audience can guess this one. Here's, here's a little riddle, though. This is a dessert that only became possible to make after a certain ingredient was invented. An ingredient that is actually, ironically, named after another American city. Arrival to New York. So obviously you're referring to the Boston baked beans. <laughs> Don't laugh. I actually like Boston baked beans. <laughs> no, no, no. We're going to head south of New York to Philadelphia, ladies and gentlemen, and to cream cheese. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the New York-style cheesecake. <laughs> Yeah. That is a whole 
cheesecake, ladies and gentlemen. Now, like any good golden girl, I do appreciate a good slice of cheesecake. And it... And it seems like it's served everywhere in New York these days. Oh, everywhere. I mean, you can order a slice of cheesecake at the lowliest diner or at the priciest steakhouse. Nearly everyone, it turns out, in New York City, it's verifiable, likes cheesecake. <laughs> New York-style cheesecake. But, uh, so would you say that the cheesecake was actually invented here in New York? Kind of. Um, the cheesecake that you and I know, this cheesecake was invented here, although variations on cheesecake have existed for centuries, for millennia even. I'm going to spare us all the ancient Greek ancestors to the cheesecake. They're out there. Um, but let's just say they're nothing like this Junior's cheesecake. Of course. And for hundreds of years in your, that's right, nobody paid to get in this show, by the way. Uh, and so for hundreds of years in Europe, bakers were using different kinds of cheeses to make different kinds of early proto-cheesecakes. But there's no way that they tasted the same as the ones that we're used to no, today. No, clearly. Clearly not, because many of those were savory. Others were made with some kind of sweet cheeses, but they were still literally cakes with cheese. I'm just not sure that, like, a cake with cheese sounds as appetizing as a cheese cake, interestingly. At, at least not for dessert. No, no. Um, meanwhile, jumping forward to New Amsterdam and then early New York, residents were making creamy and custardy pies and cakes, but still not our cheesecake. When mass immigration picked up, in, uh, picked up speed in the 19th century, Germans and Italians added their own spin on it. You know, bakeries in Little Italy uh, were making cakes with ricotta cheese. Uh, Germans cooked up cakes with cottage cheese. Yeah, a cottage cheese cake. I'm just like, I'm still not loving the sound of that. But you never know. <laughs> I'm open-minded, but I just, it's, I, it's, it's, anyway, no. Yeah. <laughs> Well, then you'd be happy to know that everything changed here as soon as one very important ingredient uh, was invented, or at least mass-marketed and produced, cream cheese. Now, we talked about this on our bagel show a few months ago. I mean, cream cheese is a versatile ingredient. Cream cheese was first mass-produced um, in 1872 by a dairy farmer named William Lawrence up in Chester, New York. And this cheese would be marketed in the 1880s by the A.L. Reynolds Company in New York, who wrapped it up neatly in, in, in tin foil, ready to use. It would be made in New York, but they would call it Philadelphia because they thought that the name actually sounded classier. <laughs> but still, it wouldn't wind up in New York for a while yet. It'd be later in the 1920s when the Breakstone brothers, New Yorkers know that name, Breakstone, from the butter aisle, <laughs> Isaac and Joseph started marketing their rival cream cheese to, to specifically to Jewish delicatessens in New York's delis and Jewish customers who would smear it on bagels <laughs> and then eventually bake it into cakes. So kind of like how the egg cream got started in soda fountains on the Lower East Side, the cheesecake first appeared there as well, but in Jewish delis instead. Well, hold on, Greg, because something interesting happened by the 1920s. Some delicatessens had actually gone mainstream and very non-kosher. Jewish restaurant entrepreneurs, um, showmen really, were starting to open up flashy and fun delicatessens outside the Lower East Side 
up, up in Midtown in the theater district. One of these flashy delis was called the, quote, Turf Restaurant. It was located at 49th and Broadway, and it was owned and operated by a man named Arnold Rubin. Oh, Arnold Rubin? Mm-hmm. Arnold Rubin, as in... Oh, yeah. Arnold Rubin invented lots of sandwiches here and at his other restaurant, Rubin's, near 58th and 5th Avenue. He named sandwiches after the stars of the day, although the legend was that this one particular sandwich was so good, made with corned beef, sauerkraut, Swiss cheese, and Russian dressing, Mm. that he decided to name it after himself. That's the legend. <laughs> the Reuben. I, I didn't have. I haven't had dinner yet. I'm, I am. That sounds so good. But what? Back to the cheesecake. What happened to the cheesecake here? Well, Reuben was an early adopter of the cheesecake, of cream cheese, and claimed to have been the first to have baked it into a cake in 1928. Now there's a, a story that floats around in cheesecake circles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> about Reuben being served a regular old cheese pie um, at a dinner party, but he fell in love with it, asked the hostess for the recipe, went back to his kitchen, tinkered around with it, eventually tried out that newfangled cream cheese in his mm. recipe, mm-hmm. and voila! That's how he allegedly invented the cheesecake, something very close to the cheesecake that we all know and love today. That is a cheesecake that is made with only four ingredients. Well, cream cheese, eggs, sugar, and then more cream. Hey, I, I think that beats cottage cheese, though, in my, in my opinion. <laughs> the, the cheesecake was a huge hit for Reuben. He shipped them all over the country, and actually he inspired some rival restaurant owners. Yeah, because actually when I think Midtown and cheesecake in the 1920s and 30s, I don't actually think of Rubens. I think of famous Lindy's, mm-hmm. right? Lindy's Cheesecake. So where does that fit into the story here? Well, Lindy's was opened in 1921 um, by a German-Jewish immigrant named Leo Lindemann. Lindy's would actually hire, poach away Rubens Baker in 1935 and start making their own cheesecakes, which by the 1940s became even more famous than Rubens. Lindy's cheesecake was also a little bit different. He added a kind of cookie crust to it and a slight lemony twist to the batter. And because, anyone hungry? (laughs) And because of the cheesecake's surging popularity, then other restaurants also decided that they also needed their own version of the cheesecake. Some would put fruit on top, some would put fruit and then Oreo cookies kind of mixed into the batter. And then thus by the 1940s, there you have it, right? We've finally got the New York-style cheesecake. But, you know, a few minutes ago, we happened to mention another name, Junior's, which, unlike Reuben and Lindy's, is still with us, thank goodness, and it's thriving. So how does then Junior's fit into the story? Well, right, and this cheesecake is from Junior's. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1950, a man named Harry Rosen was renovating uh, his restaurant that was located in downtown Brooklyn. Rosen had actually started out on the Lower East Side as a soda jerk, making egg creams. We're all crossing paths here. Okay. In 1950, he renamed that restaurant at DeKalb and Flatbush Extension Juniors after his two sons, Walter and Marvin. And Walter's, Walter's two sons actually still run it today. Now, 
according to a 2013 cheesecake profile in the Wall Street Journal. It's not, that's different than like a cheesecake photograph, which would be, yeah. has different connotations. But yeah, it was an interview. Sorry, yeah. it was yeah. very yeah. <laughs> Rosen did extensive research before actually finalizing his recipe. He traveled around town and he tested out all of the city's most popular cheesecakes, trying to figure out really what worked. He took careful notes. It's tough work, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> And that resulting cheesecake for Junior's was a little less sweet. It had a touch of vanilla in the batter, and it included a spongy layer. Yeah, it, that was a hit, and so popular with the public that the restaurant would actually end up calling it, quote, the world's most fabulous cheesecake. Oh. So, of course, you can head down to Junior's in Brooklyn or for a slice of the cheesecake, or they have two Midtown locations now. If you didn't know that, you should check those out if you're not afraid of Times Square. Um, and there are, of course, so many other amazing cheesecake bakers in the city. So many, in fact, we had to we had to thin out the list here because we just had about so many it. wanted to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but just a couple notable names to add. In 1975, Eileen's Special Cheesecake uh, Shop opened facing Petrosino Square, just north of Kenmare downtown, and that is still there and open. One thing I love about this story is how New York-style cheesecakes may have started in these delicatessens, but can now be purchased in almost any kind of restaurant and bake shop in New York. It doesn't matter what the background, including, of course, all the Italian bake shops uh, around town, especially in my neck of the woods, in my neighborhood, in Carroll Gardens. Yeah, in fact, there are so many in Carroll Gardens to mention that we really don't have time to go through all of those. But I do want to call out my favorite, the Court Pastry Shop at Court in DeGraw, which opened in 1947. Theirs are also really surprisingly affordable, under $10 for a cheesecake. Yeah, well, why do you think I live there? <laughs> I thought it was because of the reliability of the F train. Yeah. So thank well. you to the cheesecake and the many cooks who have made the New York-style cheesecake one of the city's most iconic desserts. Look, as Dorothy would say, Tom, you need a slice of cheesecake. Let's sit down at the kitchen table. Well, and now, moving on to mystery suite number four. We're going to bite into a little deliciousness wrapped in a tube-like fried doughy shell. A pig in a blanket? What if a I hot said, pocket? What if I said, yes, a pig in a blanket? No, not a, <laughs> that New York standby pig in a blanket. No, Tom, it's the cannoli. Wow, those look good. Um, I'd like to begin with a quote from famed New York Yankees sports announcer Phil Rizzuto, who is a walking advertisement for the cannoli, and once said, a day without cannolis is like a day without sunshine. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> okay, so, so far we've visited Dutch and Eastern European influences, and now we're heading off to Italy. Right, so we, uh, we've talked about cheesecakes in Italian bakeries, but this is an actual Italian dessert. The cannoli is a fried tube of dough stuffed with a delicious ricotta or mascarpone cream. 
depending on what kind it is. The name actually comes from the Italian word canolo, or little cane. And by the way, Tom, did you know that we've actually not been saying it right? That we've been saying the name wrong? Oh, what do you mean? Well, cannoli is actually plural. So when you eat one of these, you're actually eating a cannolo. A gaggle of cannolo is a cannoli. And yet, cannoli actually sounds more delicious than cannolo. Um, or at least they seem to be suggesting that you need to have more than one of them. I, I, think, I think that's right. Now, like the cheesecake, and unlike the egg cream, the cannoli, the cannoli, uh, the cannoli were not invented in America, and we might even describe it as an ancient ceremonial food. Our story begins in Sicily, and more specifically, the city of Palermo, a place that dates back to the Greek days. So, a really long time ago. Really, really long time ago. The key original ingredient to cannoli is actually ricotta which is one of the original cheeses made by the Romans and even earlier civilizations. Ricotta. But yeah. earlier you said cannoli could also be filled with mascarpone. Yeah, so mascarpone traces its origins to northern Italy near Milan, while ricotta is more popular in Sicily and southern Italy. Mm. So early cannoli was served at weddings and to this day is made for the Carnivali festival, which occurs before Lent. So it has religious connotations. The shape of the cannoli is actually believed to embody its early pre-Christian purposes as a fertility symbol with nods to phallic symbolism <laughs> that can be traced to pre-Roman art. Okay. So what you're saying is that the shape of the cannoli is, is basically... is a fertility symbol, yes. <laughs> we're, we're PG around here, folks. Uh, Family friendly. Uh, um, I mean, th it is most genuinely the most sacred of the desserts on our list here, which may explain why sometimes you hear the phrase, holy cannoli. I'm going to start using that phrase, yeah. yeah. It's a good one. But let's get this story to New York. So I'm assuming that we have then Italian immigrants to thank for the introduction of the cannolo, cannoli yeah, yeah, yeah. to New York City. Well, and specifically Southern Italian immigrants. Between the 1870s and the 1920s, millions arrived into New York Harbor, escaping terrible poverty and housing conditions in their homelands. And many of them, of course, squeezed into inferior housing stock of lower Manhattan, tenement districts like those around Five Points, for instance. But they also began new enclaves in neighborhoods like East Harlem and the vicinity of Arthur Avenue and the Bronx. Now, as we've pointed out in other shows of ours, these first arrivals were often young men who would get jobs on massive construction projects like the Brooklyn Bridge or the New York subway system. At first, they would return back home, back to Italy, with their earnings. But by the start of the 20th century, they and their families, for the most part, would stay in New York for good. But while many Italians in New York thought of themselves as migrants heading back and forth between America and Italy, they'd also bring the tastes of the old country and, and root it here on the streets of New York, like pizza. Like pizza, yes. Yeah. Pizza and bakeries, bake shops, introducing Americans to a whole variety of breads, cookies, cakes, and 
delicious sweet things, biscotti, zeppoli, and then later in the 20th century, you'd have panna cotta and tiramisu. Mm. Tiramisu. <laughs> and the popularity of these desserts would, of course, bring the Italian bakery, the idea of the Italian bakery, into the mainstream, paralleling not only the assimilation of many Italians into American life, but specifically Italian cuisine of all sorts. Pasta, risotto, and of course, pizza. And many of those foods have been completely changed today mm -hmm. from their original form. You don't really think of Kraft macaroni and cheese or Domino's pizza as being an authentic no. Italian dish. But you do think that of the cannoli. It's lived and thrived in the domain of the classic Italian bakery. And it is in these places that you will find the best cannoli still in the city. And because Italian bakeries in New York are sometimes the oldest operating business in a given neighborhood, uh, we would actually like to just give a shout out to a couple because these are truly historic places in New York City. You cannot, for instance, walk through Manhattan's Little Italy along Mulberry Street without stumbling over a cannoli. Um, <laughs> the most famous li uh, Little Italy bakery might be Ferrera's Bakery and Cafe on Grand Street right off of Mulberry, which has been open since 1892. I mean, how many cafes are still open that long today? I mean, this is an incredible run. Um, it's almost matched by another incredible place over in today's East Village, Venero's Pasticceria and Cafe. Anybody? We have meetings there sometimes. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Again, not paid. <laughs> Venero's opened in 1894. Um, they just celebrated their 125th anniversary a few months ago by passing out free mini cannoli. <laughs> both of these places actually have amazing cheesecake too, by the way, and both of these places are run by the original families, the Ferreras and the Veneros. I'd even say that a family connection is the most important ingredient. Uh, well, and one of it's the... It's a cheesy yeah. line. <laughs> it's a cheesy line. Yeah. Um, uh, and one of the core foods at these and many other cafes throughout the city is the cannoli. Today you'll find many different kinds of ingredients and flavors folded into the typical form of the cannoli. And of course, you'll find many cannolis. And I cannot, in this segment, we cannot move on to the fifth dessert without making a mention of one final place. It's called Cafe Palermo, just around the corner from Ferreras in, on Mulberry Street. While they've only been open since 1973, they, they claim that they have the best cannoli on planet Earth, okay, mm. on the Quite entire planet, home of the cannoli king. No doubt to capitalize on one of the cannoli's greatest moments in pop culture history. And what would that be? In the film, The Godfather, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1973, just a couple months before the opening of Cafe Palermo. So I'll leave you with one of the film's classic lines. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. <laughs> Let's hear it for the cannoli. My goodness. Look at all of this. Look at the spread. Usually, 
we go back and forth, as you may have seen, with when talking about a particular story. But for the last dessert, we're going to do something a little different and share this story. First, because, frankly, we, we both wanted to talk about this. But secondly, it's an iconic dessert that literally represents unity. Hmm. Yin and yang, ebony and ivory, chocolate and vanilla. That's right. It's the New York dessert you've all been waiting for. Let's hear it for the much-beloved black and white cookie, ladies and gentlemen. These, these are ubiquitous in New York. I mean, I mean they are all over the place. They're oh, yeah. in bake shops. They're in bagel shops. They're in diners. They're in corner delis. They're in grocery stores. They're in 99-cent stores. They're in cool co-working spaces. They're in <laughs> uncomfortable office parties. They're just, That's like, right. everywhere. They are in all of those places. That's true. But let's define the black and white cookie first because it can mean a lot of things. Uh, depending on where you live and depending on how you frost it. Mm -hmm. Oh, the intrigue. <laughs> At its most basic, and you know, we're almost always talking about a cookie that is about four to six inches in diameter, unless we're talking about mini black and white cookies, which we're not talking about right now. <laughs> um, and normally they're frosted or iced with both chocolate and vanilla frosting or fondant. Mm -hmm. It can be called a black and white, or a half moon, or even a half and half. But as we'll see here, those terms do not describe the same cookie. No, they don't. Now, we started the show with the, with the donut. We started it in Dutch New Amsterdam, if you remember, with the great gift of the modern world, the donut. But did you know that the cookie, in some form or another, also goes back to New Amsterdam? That's right. The Dutch even have a word, cookie. <laughs> Kukia. <laughs> which sounds awfully close to cookie. Um, but today, we'd probably actually refer to those as just little cakes. And in fact, from the pictures I've seen, they're probably related more to a snack cake, which is conclusive proof that Dolly Madison, Hostess, and Little Debbie all have a little <laughs> Dutch heritage in them. So is, does, that make, does that mean that Twinkie is a Dutch word? Oh, it is. It comes from Twinkie. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, that's not, that, that is true. Uh, well, anyway, the English had, of course, long baked cakes of all sizes into the colonial era, and then German immigrants would fortunately bring along their cake-making skills to America in the mid-19th century. Through all of these influences, bakers would invent the American-style cookie. But we're here just to talk about one of them, the black and white cookie. And let's start with the variation that comes from upstate New York, okay? The half moon cookie. The half moon variety was likely invented in Hemstraut's bakery in Utica, New York in 1920. Now these cookies take the shape of a small domed, sort of dome-shaped mound. I'd really say that they're sort of a mini chocolate cake in a way. These are frosted with vanilla and chocolate frosting, in my opinion, kind of slathered on, you know, in a rather unrefined manner. That's just me. <laughs> um, the frosting is almost like identical to what you might find on a traditional birthday cake, um, almost spackled on, but that's the look. <laughs> but, but these are really referred to, I think, more often as half moon cookies. Yes. Now, your first guess when you look at this, 
right, might be that the name refers to a lunar phase of the actual moon in the sky. But there may be a more historical reason for the name. As Robert Tsitsima points out in his 2015 book, New York in a Dozen Dishes, in 1909, just seven years after Hemstrauts opened, the state of New York was just about to honor the 300th anniversary of the arrival of the explorer Henry Hudson. 1909, in fact, was the year of the Hudson Fulton celebration, which was a year-long tribute to invention and innovation in New York State. And front and center of this was Henry Hudson. He inspired parades, monuments, boat christenings, and quite possibly baked goods. Now remember, after all, that the name of Henry Hudson's vessel when he sailed into New York Harbor was the Half Moon, or the Half Moon. Aha. Uh-huh. But interestingly, you'll have a hard time finding a Half Moon cookie in New York City. That's because, ladies and gentlemen, this is black and white cookie territory. <laughs> uh, now, as Tom just mentioned, a full-size black and white cookie is rather large and flat. And in New York, they're often covered in black and white fondant. Right, they kind of look like the city slicker cousin to the half moon. But Greg, do we know who first developed the black and white? Probably the best claim goes to the late great Glossers Bakery up uh, 87th Street and 1st Avenue in the Yorkville neighborhood of the Upper East Side. Glossers was opened in 1902 by John and Justin Glosser, German immigrants from Bavaria at a time when Yorkville was one of the city's largest German-speaking neighborhoods. Now, as anyone who follows bakeries in the city knows, Glossers unfortunately closed up shop last summer in 2018. But the bake shop's owners, brothers Herb and John Glosser, third-generation owners, spoke often about the black and white cookies' origins. According to a 1998 interview Herb gave William Grimes in the New York Times, as far as he knew, Glossers had been baking black and whites as soon as they opened in 1902. There was, however, one very notable difference between Glossers' black and whites and many of the black and whites that you'll find elsewhere in the city, and that these were frosted and not covered in fondant. And do we know why... Glossers decided to frost their cookies when others fondanted them? (laughs) Well, according uh, actually to this book, uh, New York in a Dozen Dishes, it wasn't because the frosting simply wasn't necessary. Here's the thing about fondant, don't you know? It's a good choice for cookies that need a very, very long shelf life. It keeps them fresh longer than frosting does and seals it in. Ah, but a bake shop like Glossers wasn't as concerned about keeping their cookies as fresh because they'd all be well, they'd all be purchased and gobbled up right away. They were always eaten fresh. So, you know, makes sense. Now we can't talk about black and whites without at least mentioning probably their biggest moment in mainstream popular culture. When Jerry Seinfeld sang their praises in a 1994 episode of Seinfeld. See, the key to eating a black and white cookie, Elaine, is you want to get some black and some white in each bite. Nothing mixes better than vanilla and chocolate. And yet still somehow racial harmony eludes us. If people would only look to the cookie, all our problems would be solved. Oh, your views on race relations are just 
fascinating. You really should do an op-ed piece for the Times. Hmm. Look to the cookie, Elaine. Look to the cookie. And even though um, they, the cookie never succeeded in generating and inspiring racial harmony, like Jerry was hoping, mm-hmm. um, there is a solid chance that they did manage to at least inspire another popular American cookie. This one, an American icon that bakers at Nabisco headquarters in Chelsea developed in 1912, just a decade after Glazers opened. So there in today's Chelsea Market and Google headquarters and Chelsea <laughs> Market, yeah. machines started stamping out a black and white, or rather a chocolate and vanilla cookie combination with a shelf life even longer than fondant. I, weeks, months, years probably, you know, I, I, I assume. They would call their black and whites, ladies and gentlemen, Oreos. So when you get a hankering for a black and white, I'd suggest just opening your eyes to them in the city. You'll see that they are everywhere and that the black and white cookie has conquered New York. Now, Greg, we have a little surprise. Mm-hmm. Because as a special thank you to tonight's studio audience who have sat here patiently while we've discussed five mouthwatering desserts, Everyone here in this audience is leaving with a black and white cookie. You get a cookie. You get a cookie. You get a cookie. You all get cookies. There they are, ladies and gentlemen. Now, a word about these black and whites. They were baked by William Greenberg Desserts. A bakery, a fabulous bakery, also didn't pay us, that, that opened in Manhattan in 1946 and is well known for their black and whites that are covered in fondant. For those of you listening at home, head over to BoweryBoysHistory.com to see photos of all this delicious food. We'd like to thank those who have joined us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. It's because of your small monthly contributions that we're able to spend all of our time producing the Bowery Boys podcast. We could not make this show without your support. Uh, for this episode, our special patron-only podcast, The Takeout, will feature one more story about a famous New York City dessert. Which one will it be? Join us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys to find out. And don't forget, patrons should also check out their feed for a new episode of the Barry Boys Movie Club. And finally, a huge thank you to WNYC, to the Green Space, and today's studio audience for joining us here today. You guys were fabulous. We have more live shows coming up soon, including one at the Bell House in Brooklyn on Sunday, January 26, 2020, as part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. Tickets are actually now on sale at cityfarmpresents.com. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Dunkin' Cold Coffee can be brewed at home in your Keurig coffee maker with Dunkin' Cold K-Cup Pods. 
Just brew it hot over ice and enjoy flavor that's crafted to serve cold. The home with Dunkin' is where you want to be.